This talk is what to do with burnout in enhancing emotional well-being and prevention and treatment. Webster defines burnout as the exhaustion of physical or emotional strength, usually as a result of prolonged stress or frustration. And we all know about occupational burnout. Uh, it's characterized by exhaustion, lack of enthusiasm, lack of motivation, feelings of ineffectiveness, and it usually has a dimension um, where you know, notice that the person is exhibiting more frustration and even cynicism in regards to uh, talking about others. And um, it, when it's uh, truly present, it's also going to result in reduced efficiency and efficacy within the workplace. Occupations with the largest risk are social workers, nurses, teachers, lawyers, engineers, physicians, mid-level practitioners. Um, we should put dentists in there as well, custom service representative and police officers. Although uh, dentists, for whatever reason at this point, dentists used to have more burnout than physicians, but lately it's the opposite. Physicians experiencing more burnout um, than dentists. And of course, virtually all of these occupations are human services uh, fields where we are providing services to humanity. And high stress work environment and emotional demands of the job um, are also contributing uh, factors um, for this. So uh, maybe one of the reasons why the original occupation was agriculture uh, and those sorts of things where you have, weren't having to work with faulty humanity 24-7 or at least uh, you know, a good uh, a share of the time. Uh, burnout is not defined as a distinct disorder in the DSM-5, uh, but it's interestingly included in the ICD-10 uh, under life management difficulty. And so uh, life management difficulty would kind of encompass uh, this. Social psychologists Christina Maslock and Susan Jackson developed the most widely used instrument for assessing burnout, namely the Maslock Burnout Inventory. And a mini-Z burnout survey is used to measure burnout in physicians by the AMA. And a growing body of evidence suggests that burnout is clinically and nosologically similar to depression. In fact, it's very difficult to distinguish the difference between burnout and depression. Although we've had some individuals come through our program saying, I'm not here for depression, I'm here for burnout. But when you look at their scores, <laughs> uh, it is severe depression. In a study that directly compared depressive symptoms and burned out workers and clinically depressed patients, interestingly, no diagnostically significant differences were found between the two groups. Burned out workers reported as many depressive symptoms as clinically depressed patients. Uh, and, uh, and now there's a new term called brownout. And uh, more recently, the term brownout has been used in the business world to describe less serious versions of burnout. And it refers to staff who are disengaged and demotivated in their job role. And of course, uh, one of the most common reasons for burnout today in disengagement and demotivation is actually the abundant use of screens in the workplace. Uh, and uh, if you want to prevent brownout in your employees, uh, you probably need to have a um, screen reduction policy of some sort or an absence 
of screens uh, being utilized in the workforce, and at least you'll decrease that rate of brownout um, some. Uh, Mini-Z Physician uh, Survey takes a look at job satisfaction, job stress, energy exhaustion, and control over your workload, as well as time for documentation. Also takes a look at your surrounding work atmosphere and your values aligning with department leaders and efficiency of rest, um, uh, the efficiency of the rest of the team, meaning the um, the remainder of the team outside of you, how efficient are they? If they're very inefficient, it's going to tend to affect your own work performance and also your, um, you will tend to get burned out far more easily. Uh, also, if you're using EHR in your home or the electronic health record in your home, uh, that is, of course, um, related with physician burnout. And of course, your proficiency in actually um, utilizing the record. Uh, there's a lot of physicians that just aren't very proficient at this even yet. Uh, and uh, this, of course, can affect uh, this aspect of things. And of course, it's good since the symptoms are identical of burnout and depression to go over the nine diagnostic hallmark symptoms of depression. Now, these are not all the symptoms of depression. There's over 100 symptoms of depression. But there's nine that are diagnostic hallmark that are used by the DSM. Uh, in diagnosing, and the DSM, by the way, has not changed from three to four to five, uh, unlike it has for some fields uh, where it's changed significantly. For depression and anxiety, it's virtually the same. So uh, deep sadness is one of those uh, symptoms. Uh, of course, women tend to notice this more so than men because they will notice their sadness as a result of crying spells. Uh, men tend not to get the crying spells. They tend to get the emptiness uh, feeling and uh, women will see the doctor because of crying spells, but no man will see a doctor because he feels empty. And uh, and and so a lot of men actually um, deny that they're in depression, but the DSM states emptiness actually qualifies. So if you're feeling empty the majority of the time, uh, that actually is one of those symptoms. Apathy is also another symptom. This is when you wake up in the morning and you're not excited about the day. You do get up, but you get up out of a sense of duty and responsibility, but not interest. And that can happen once in a great while to anybody, but when it happens particularly commonly or even a quarter of the time, that's abnormal. And if it comes up to over half of the time, that is distinctly abnormal. Uh, but yet a lot of people put up with this. Uh, because they're, they're slaves to their debts and, and they, they, they just feel um, entrapped and they have to get up. And, of course, they know they should anyways, uh, but apathy is a major part. And, of course, that means they have, as this progresses, you actually get to the place where you're not able to experience pleasure as much. Things that used to be pleasurable for you are no longer pleasurable. And of course, this has to do with brain chemistry issues as well. The brain chemical that's most tightly linked to the development of apathy is what? It's dopamine. Yeah, and so these are issues with dopamine production or dopamine receptors um, very often. And so uh, this is where uh, dopamine can play um, a role. Um, agitation or irritability. Uh, is uh, one of those diagnostic hallmark symptoms. And this is the symptom that turns out 
out of the nine that, are, that is least able to be self-diagnosed. You know, I've met a number of individuals that have come to our program. Unfortunately, their spouse might be with them on the first visit, and I'll ask them, are you more irritable than you used to be? And they'll say no. And their spouse is over there saying, oh, yes, they are. And, and then the spouse will tell, you know, some stories of how they've flown off the handle in ways that they didn't used to do that. And uh, then they'll turn around and say, I guess she's right. I guess I am more irritable. And so uh, sometimes you need to ask others if you're more agitated. Or this is, of course, psychomotor retardation. The psychiatric Bible puts these two together, uh, not meaning that if one you have or the other, but if you have either one, you're, you're suffering from that third symptom. Fourth are sleep disturbances. And, of course, this could be insomnia. It could be hypersomnia. Uh, most people in the medical care world do not have hypersomnia uh, because they're not allowed to have that, uh, but uh, they can have insomnia. And the most common form of insomnia is actually early morning awakening. They're able to go to sleep when their head hits the pillow, but they wake up too early and can't get back to sleep. And at first they might be waking up at 4 in the morning and can't get back to sleep, but as the depression gets more severe, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and they can't get back to sleep. Waiter appetite changes, and this can occur either way. If it's weight gain or weight loss, it qualifies. Which is more common? Weight gain is more common. And why is it more common? Because we tend to self-medicate with food. And what type of food do we tend to self-medicate with? It's the sugary foods. And sugar actually transiently raises serotonin. It's one of the ways in which we're... Um, uh, getting our serotonin levels up there so it not only tastes good, but we actually feel less stressed and we feel a little better, maybe a little more socially connected. And uh, this is why we'll never get rid of our obesity problem in this country until we get rid of the mental health issues behind it. Uh, It's not just a matter of calories in, calories out. Yes, it is that, but you can't necessarily control that unless we're taking care of the mental health issues behind it. But you can also get into weight loss and anorexia. And in every one of our programs, we only accept 20 in our residential programs, we have the overweight and we have the underweight. And, of course, we'll have the normal weight as well. But interestingly, on the same program, the underweight individuals will all gain weight and the overweight individuals all lose weight. Uh, we're, uh, of course, dealing with the brain chemistry issues behind it. But weight loss tends to be associated, particularly if it's combined with anxiety. There are some people it will hurt for them to eat. And uh, they'll get nausea, and they'll get bloating, and they'll get all these GI symptoms. Uh, it's one of the reasons, as an internal medicine GI doctor, I went into this field because I would be seeing people that had been to, and, of course, one of our Uh, areas of expertise is a difficult-to-diagnose patient. So they'd come to me seeing that difficult-to-diagnose patient, and they've had their scopes done, they've had their CTs done, they've had their biopsies, they've had everything done, and they're still in significant GI distress. And after I look at us over, I'll say, you know, your problem is not your GI tract. It's your anxiety. And they'll say, almost to a person, Doctor, I know I have anxiety, but I have anxiety because of this. If you fix this, my anxiety will go away. And I'll say, no, sir. (laughs) Your 
GI problems are caused by your anxiety. By the way, there's 21 different uh, systems involved physically that can happen with anxiety. Anxiety tends to result in a lot of physical symptoms, and the GI tract is one of those major ones. And so I'll say you need treatment for your anxiety. And sometimes these individuals are pretty easy to diagnose. One guy in particular was really arguing me against this, says, I want to see confirmation. How in the world, after you looked at all this, did you know it was anxiety? And I said, well, you gave me a big clue because you said the only thing that gets you better out of anything is when you take your lorazepam. And I said, lorazepam is not doing anything for your GI tract, but it is blunting the symptoms of your anxiety. But now you're needing more and more. You recognize you can't go without it. And so for an individual like that, they actually need our residential program because they're not going to get off their lorazepam with this type of GI distress and all that without an actually residential program. So they'll have to schedule and go to the residential program. And then they'll be just thrilled and how their GI problems are all solved, and, of course, other problems that that their anxiety was causing uh, as a result of getting to those underlying issues. But you can also get weight loss without anxiety if it is a sudden, severe onset of depression. So if whatever happens in your life, it's sudden, severe onset, you can often lose your appetite uh, just from the depression and not necessarily anxiety. Lack of concentration. Uh, This is when you lose your focus and you're reading something that's interesting to you, and you get to the bottom of the page, and you realize you forgot what was at the top of the page. And you have to go back and read it again, and it might be so severe that even the third time you've missed it. And so lack of focus and concentration is a key ingredient uh, for major depression and burnout. And then, of course, this is when we know it's crossed the line, uh, when you actually have feelings of worthlessness. And... uh, Of course, if you have any ability to be of use to yourself or others, you're certainly not worthless. But these individuals will view themselves as worthless, and that's a sign that we've gone beyond. I mean, you can't just call this burnout now. Uh, This is actually a major depression. And then morbid thoughts uh, are also a sign that it's crossed the line. And morbid thoughts is not just um, thinking you'd be better off dead, uh, which a lot of people actually... Um, believe that. They're not actively suicidal, but they actually uh, pray that um, they would, their lives would, um, would be taken at night uh, in their sleep and the Lord would just um, not allow them to wake up in the morning. And uh, of course, that's a morbid thought. But we also need to be, um, you know, encouraged uh, by the fact that there were great people in the Bible uh, that occasionally had this. And, of course, um, Elijah uh, was one of them. But also, a lot of people don't realize Moses was one of them. Uh, Moses, actually, in the first year of his ministry uh, to the people of Israel, said, I can't take this lot. (laughs) I can't take them. Why have you assigned me to be over them? And he says, just take my life. He said, and he asked God to take his life. Uh, And, of course, he was in the service industry uh, of servicing uh, all of these individuals uh, and all of their issues. And uh, it was kind of interesting that Moses grew and developed to the point where um, after that the Lord said, let me take these people away from you. And Moses prayed and said, please don't. 
uh, take me if you're going to take them, uh, because he had developed uh, that love and compassion uh, for this unruly uh, group of people. But morbid thoughts, of course, if you're actually thinking of ending your life, that would be a morbid thought. Or if you're thinking that it would be better if someone else would just go ahead and die for you, uh, that is also a morbid thought. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it goes beyond that. Preoccupation with death or symbols of death, when you're thinking of death a lot. We had one individual come to our program just in the last program, and, and she was um, not actively suicidal, so she answered all those questions zero uh, when it came there, when she came in. But when I talked to her, she was just preoccupied with death. And there was a reason why she was preoccupied with death, because she could think of 10 people in the last five years that were below the age of 60 that had lost their life, that she knew pretty well. And uh, she was um, getting in her mid-50s and thinking, you know, am I next? And so she was worried that she was going to die and worried she had some illness that was going to take her out as quickly as it did some of these other people, and she just couldn't quit thinking about it. And then she uh, got on to a, a site um, where it talks about what happens when you die in regards to your cells and all of that. And then she had her first panic attack uh, and came into her husband and, and uh, said, you know, what can, uh, what can I do? And uh, it, was, it was actually a result of that, realizing how far it had taken her um, that, um, that she enrolled in our program because of just pervasive, morbid thoughts every day. Uh, that she could not get her mind off of. And then fatigue. Um, and by the way, I should mention on her, in a comprehensive program, the last five days of the program, she never once thought about death. <laughs> uh, and uh, she had uh, uh, recovered from that. And then fatigue. This is where, you, you know, apathy is when you don't have the interest, but fatigue is when you don't have the energy. And it can really, uh, you run out of energy too early in the day, or you wake up with not enough energy. Now, you don't need all of these symptoms. If you read the fine print up there, how many of these do you need? If you just have five of those symptoms, that's enough for major depression um, and or burnout, as we mentioned. And, of course, the more, the more severe, or if you have feelings of worthlessness and morbid thoughts, we always rate that as severe. Those are severe indicators. Um, but if you have two of those symptoms, it's still abnormal. That's called minor depression or subsyndromal depression or that would, might be called the brownout uh, part of things uh, and, uh, instead of the actual uh, burnout. Uh, physicians do experience high rates of burnouts. Rates of burnout have also been increasing over time. Women experience higher rates of burnout than male counterparts in the medical um, world. Um, it's actually uh, quite a difference between 2011 and 2014. Rates of physician burnout increased from 45% to 54%. So a 10% increase over those uh, three years. And by the way, it's increasing even more since that time. 51% of docs reported burnout. Half of all doctors in 2016 had it, with women reporting 55% compared with men, 46%. Uh, and in general, the uh, men are working longer hours, so it's not necessarily the amount of hours that women are working versus men, because if you look at the difference in hours of physicians of males and females, it's, it's clear that overall the average female hourly work 
um, rate is higher. And of course, it's there by choice um, that it's less because of normally home responsibilities and other things um, that, that have to be done. So it's not that sh um, she's working less overall than men. It's just at the job, working in an employable uh, state, uh, working less um, in that regard. Uh, AMA and Mayo did a study in 2016, and it showed a 10% increase in three years. Number one specialty in burnout, at least in 2016. Anyone want to guess what it was? Emergency medicine. So the ER docs uh, tend to burn out relatively quickly. And normally in 10 years, it's starting. And by 20 years, the cynicism, all of those things are well on their way. And uh, I have a, a physician, a friend of mine, uh, who was an ER doc and after 10 years was starting to notice it. And uh, when he was coming up on 20 years, he actually said, you know what, my father is an electrician and he's making more money than I do and he's very healthy, no burnout at all. I'm just going to give up the practice of medicine. And that's what he did. And he went into his father's business. <laughs> and he now actually makes more money than an ER doc. And uh, he owns about four um, um, trailer parks around the country, large um, trailer parks, and um, he flies in a, his Eclipse jet around uh, checking on these uh, trailer parks and uh, no longer has any burnout and uh, <laughs> is, is feeling great, but he's not in the service industry anymore. Uh, you know, he's in the, he's in the real estate uh, business and not really the, um, the physician service business, and I think there's a solution to that besides just changing professions uh, that we're going to get into. In 2016, urology was also a high burnout rate. PM&R, I was surprised to see them up there. Family medicine, radiology, uh, I was surprised to see them uh, there in the top 10. Uh, orthopedics, also in the top 10. And of course, a lot of this has to do with the demands of the profession and the shortage that might be out there. And internal medicine was also in the top 10. The least of all, however, were preventive medicine specialists. They continue to, to show the least rates of physician burnout, and job satisfaction rates tend to be uh, the highest. And there's others there, but I also noticed in the, the, the ones that were least, radiation oncology, for whatever re, uh, reason, also has a very low rate of uh, burnout. So, uh, of course, there are physical symptoms. Uh, there's also health symptoms, you know, poor health um, results. Uh, relationship uh, issues also result in regards to family and in regards to uh, coworkers um, as well, where the co-working relationship is affected. And then, of course, when you're actually thinking of leaving the practice of medicine uh, when you're only in your 40s or 50s, <laughs> you know, that can be a clue. Uh, that this is uh, happening. And, of course, uh, the ultimate worst effect is physician or dental um, suicide, um, which is also uh, on the rise. Um, here are some quotes uh, from some, um, some uh, people have centered in this area. Burnout makes it nearly impossible 
for individuals to provide what? Compassionate. Compassionate care for their patients. So if, you have, if you're struggling with all those issues, you're not getting enough sleep, you're waking up with apathy, you're, all of those things, you know, you're going to a conference like this saying, you know, I know everyone's talking about giving compassionate care where we're reaching the soul, but I don't seem to be able to do that. It actually could be due to burnout, and so we really need to solve that issue uh, in order uh, for you to be able to go uh, to the next step. This was uh, Stephen uh, Lockman's quote uh, from uh, Minneapolis. And then, of course, there are workplace causes um, that, um, uh, that have been shown to be underlying causes combined with other things, but too many bureaucratic tasks. You know, uh, physicians are actually more um, involved in bureaucratic tasks than ever before. You know, it's one of the issues I must say, you know, as internal medicine, I do a little bit of primary care. But one of the aspects of primary care I hate is all these you know, bureaucratic tasks of signing a family leave document or signing this or signing that, and everything has to be signed by a doctor. And you're not doctoring at all. You're just providing um, some paperwork and having to fill out why you're saying what you're saying. Uh, and all sorts of issues um, related to that. And there are more now than ever before. Of course, spending too many hours at work. What are, what are the primary reasons why lately doctors are spending too many hours at work? <laughs> it's bureaucratic tasks and also something that has decreased their patient care interaction. And it's called the electronic health record. By the way, I think we're going to find out this was not necessarily the benefits outweighing the risks in regards to the AEHR um, record. And, of course, the, um, the, the societies in charge of us were very much wanting this because you can't manage somebody unless you measure them. And it's hard to measure them unless you have the electronic health record to be able to do that. And so they really wanted ways to be able to measure and not have to do chart audits on paper charts but it's clearly taken you out of the realm. When you were in paper charts, you weren't writing much down at all, but you were maybe writing things that needed to be done for that patient, but you were primarily dictating into a, a dictaphone. And by the way, the dictating records were actually far more accurate than the electronic health record. Uh, they were identifying things where you could remember the patient, but with the templates and all of these things that are going on, you have to distrust a little bit of the electronic health record, and then you'll see a consult come into the hospital, and all he's done is copied and pasted everything that I did, and then he has his impression and plan that's very different. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, there's a lot, of, um, uh, a lot less accuracy uh, than there used to be in regards to the electronic health record. And so the increased computerization of practice has caused a workplace cause for burnout. And then also lower incomes despite the increased demands. Uh, it's very clear today. In fact, I was just talking to someone who is a, um, a dentist in another country, and he's here getting a residency at Loma Linda so that he can be a dentist uh, in this country. And uh, uh, it's, it's clear that um, a, a dentistry is a far more... Um, uh, what, what should I say, far more sought-after specialty than it was a few years ago. 
because the medical incomes have gone down considerably. Dental incomes have not, uh, and, uh, and medical incomes used to be higher than dental incomes. But in, in reality, the amount that Obamacare and these things are reimbursing uh, doctors for time, uh, there was a point in time where I think doctors were overpaid. Uh, that's not the case, um, really, anymore in regards to the type of work that they're doing and, uh, and also the amount of hours that they're spending and things like that. Uh, and so uh, overpaid doctors is, uh, is just really not the issue that it used to be. And when the demands are placed on you, particularly since we have employed doctors in ever, more than ever before, where you don't have really a decision whether you're going to do this or not, that also adds into the complexity. So uh, a few years ago, um, the, uh, Dr. Ramirez and I uh, published a study on over 4,000 individuals uh, taking a look at the underlying causes of uh, depression and, of course, uh, we uh, developed a test called the Depression and Anxiety Assessment Test that actually not only takes a look to see whether you have it and to what degree, but also looks at the underlying 10 um, causes. And, uh, and so there are genetic issues. In fact, in the physician world itself, um, there, there is more of this gene than any of the other mutated genes but this is called an undermethylator. Physicians tend to be undermethylators. Undermethylators are calm exterior, tense interior. They also tend to be highly competitive, and that's why they got into medical school, uh, was because of this tense interior that drove them uh, into studying hard and into excelling and things of that nature. Uh, but it turns out undermethylators tend to have more of a seri less serotonin activity uh, in their brain. And so this is something that we actually measure. We can now measure uh, to see whether someone is an active undermethylator. Uh, and uh, you will see a preponderance of physicians, attorneys, uh, even some sports heroes, you know, the baseball pitcher who has to strike out the guy and stare him down and do what it takes to win. They're often undermethylators. And I should say, one of the things when they come to our program, we tell them they're an undermethylator. At first, they're gratified that, wow, we're finding a brain chemistry problem that we can fix here. But as soon as we start to fix it, they say, if this gets fixed, am I going to not be as competitive <laughs> as I used to be? I mean, am I not going to be able to uh, perform on this level? Actually, it won't adversely affect their performance. If anything, it will help them. Um, but uh, it's, we're not uh, necessarily completely reversing anything in regards to the, un the undermethyl. Everything in regards to the undermethylation, we're reversing particularly the serotonin, uh, tryptophan, issues um, that come with that, as well as dopamine issues. There's also a dopamine, um, a less dopamine activity in the undermethylator. And so there's developmental issues. These are adverse childhood experiences uh, that can also play their role. This is where attachment issues uh, can have a role to play, and we uh, screen for those. We also screen for lifestyle issues, and for lifestyle issues, we're primarily looking at um, out being uh, in or actually getting enough physical exercise, but there's also an advantage of getting your physical exercise outdoors in green spaces. 
one of the things that we have found out that has occurred, and you know, I can, uh, I could measurably see this because I, I became uh, president of Weimar in 2008, and one of the things I used to like to do in regards to physical exercise, of course, I had young boys and, and sons and needed to keep them active, was actually playing tennis. So in 2008, when we go down to the Auburn tennis courts just 10 minutes away from there to play, we would often have to wait for a court. You never have to wait for a court today. In fact, they got rid of several tennis courts. Uh, And you still, I've never had to wait for a tennis court. What happened after 2008? The smartphone came out. Smartphone came out in 2007. And so people are replacing outdoor time that they used to do with screen time. And that has not been a good replacement. Uh, you even go to national parks today. Far less people visit national parks. Uh, they're, they're, they're less outdoors than they used to be. Uh, and uh, I just fear for even a place like this in 30 years, uh, when all the people that weren't raised with devices die off the planet, is anyone going to even want to golf anymore to keep a golf course open? Um, you know, uh, and, and they'll want to, they, they may want to play golf on a screen somewhere, uh, but it actually getting outside and green spaces, being outside in nature does help our brain chemistry. It actually is something that's very healthy uh, for us. And so we look for things that are lifestyle related in regards to this. Circadian rhythm, I think we addressed that in the last hour. I know some of you weren't here for the last hour. But setting our body clock, regularity uh, in, uh, in morning uh, time, and particularly that morning light. Addiction hits are also at an all-time high. And there's a lot of physicians and dentists that are addicted to their screens. And uh, this is the most rapid-rising addiction. In fact, anyone want to guess what percent of Generation Y and Z, these are people that reached adulthood around the year 2000, or people who were born after 2000, anyone want to guess what percent of them agree that they're addicted to their smartphones? The ones who agree that they're addicted are 40%. Now, do you think it's more or less than that? It's significantly more than that. And studies are showing about an 80%. And, of course, this is where they actually uh, can't imagine life without the device. And uh, they go through all sorts of resistance exercise. We had one of those Generation Zers in our program, and he heard about what we do with devices in our program. And I was there for the first evening. The first evening lecture we give is actually on devices in our program, the first formal lecture, because of what it does in regards to brain chemistry. And now the evidence is overwhelming how it drives people to distraction. You know, you get on there to do your homework, and then within... Five minutes, you're not doing your homework anymore because you got a push notification. You got a news notification that Donald Trump said something about another woman, and you've got to check that out. And, and then a Snapchat uh, comes in. Uh, and, uh, and so there's constant um, driving to distraction uh, that goes on. And this is the area of our brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus in the frontal lobe. And when we're driven to distraction, This is the identical area that we need for managing distressing emotions. So anyone that's addicted to a phone is not going to be able to manage their distressing emotions. 
And so they have to be able to get over that. And of course, they have to engage in what we're saying. And if they're being distracted by someone giving them a, a text message in the middle of a, an important lecture, they can actually lose the most important part that would help them uh, in this process. So, you know, after that lecture, I knew a little bit of background for him. So the next day, I was seeing him, and I said, so what did you think about this lecture? And he said, you're right. You're absolutely right. I need to make a complete change in regards to my devices. And I said, so what did you think about giving up um, your phone? He says, I gave it up. I gave it up last night. I said, but you only gave up one of your phones. <laughs> How do you know I have another phone? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know that, <laughs> he said. And I said, you know, if you're really going to, if you just agreed with all of those things, why not give up the other phone? Well, someone might need to get in touch with me. You know, they always have these reasons. But, you know, that would be the inhibiting thing. In fact, there's a, you might want to get the book by Victoria Dunkley. She's a L.A. psychiatrist. And she says she will not diagnose any mental illness, whether it be ADHD, bipolar, depression, anxiety. She won't diagnose any mental illness in any psychiatric patient until they're screen-free for six weeks. And her first half of her book gives the evidence, and the second half of the book actually tells you how you can live your life completely screen-free. <laughs> it's called Reset Your... He's, she's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. It's called Reset Your Child's Brain. Uh, is the name of it, but it really should be called Reset Your Brain because the same is true with adults. We have 70-year-olds that are addicted to their phones uh, that come into our program. This is not just a young person's issue. Uh, this is um, a lot of people's issue. In fact, we had a 72-year-old man that was in our program, and after that first lecture, and his wife said he's retired and he's just on a screen a lot. And, uh, and she was trying to get him to do other things, and he thought he needed to be on the screen for looking at stocks and looking at other things like this. And the, the very next day when he came in, he said, the entire price of this program was worth it for that one lecture. I am going to change, completely change my relationship to screens. Uh, and uh, so anyways, that, that addiction is on the rise. But the other addictions are on the rise. There's more marijuana. In fact, medical people are using the CBD and all sorts of stuff to try to patch things together in regards to um, uh, things. And they think, although this is bad for most people, for me, I need it. And so they justify themselves in regards to their addiction, uh, which is actually causing them less ability to manage their emotions. Nutrition, of course, plays a vital role. What we eat does get turned into neurotransmitters. It's crucially important. Uh, toxic uh, causes can be an issue. And, of course, this could be mercury. By the way, we have noticed a lot more emotional issues in fish eaters than non-fish eaters. And that has to do with the mercury content of fish. In fact, the studies are very clear. The risks of fish outweigh the benefits now. Even though omega-3 is beneficial, it's better to get your omega-3 from other sources because it's less toxic sources. And so, but another toxicity that's even more common is the one I mentioned the last hour in regards to the free copper toxicity. And, of course, seafood can be one of the reasons there's a lot of copper in seafood, but it may be some genetic issues that are uh, helping bring that about. Social complicated stress or grief, of course, these can be 
adverse adult experiences that can also be a hit, like the job and things that we mentioned. And then there might be contributing medical conditions, like a hormonal issue or other issues. And then another category that's on the rise are frontal lobe causes, not only due to the devices, but due to the fact that most of humanity, including doctors and dentists, are not doing things habitually to enhance their frontal lobe ability. And they are actually doing things to detract from it. By the way, I found it interesting, speaking of doctors and residents, uh, my son is in a second year residency. And for the first time in both of our lives, you know, uh, all the time growing up, I thought, my kids have not had it as hard as I had it. <laughs> You know, I, uh, they've, they've had things pretty well handed to them on a silver platter, and they haven't had to work as hard, although they're good kids overall. But, you know, we grew up in different eras, and I know I didn't have it near as hard as my dad had it, you know, growing up in the World War II generation and the post-Depression era and things like that. But uh, this year, in a second year of orthopedics, I had to say, Alan, it's clear you're working harder than I've ever worked in my entire life. And right now, he's on six, um, he's on 10 weeks of six nights in a row of work. And he goes to work at 6 p.m. every night, and he doesn't get off until 9 a.m. And his only uh, day off is on Saturday night. And there's 10 weeks, and they tell them, don't take vacation. You can't even go to your brother's wedding which actually happened to be an issue during those 10 weeks. Uh, he actually did go to his brother's wedding, but the brother's wedding was on Sunday, and they had to time it. So he just arrived for the wedding because he was uh, in, the wedding was in Collegedale, Tennessee, and then he left right afterwards, and he got one resident to cover for him from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. till he got home, and he, he could work from 11 p.m. Uh, on. And... Uh, <clears throat> But yet, his wife, he just got married a year ago. I was talking to her, and he said, he comes home every morning with a big smile on his face. He just loves his work, and he also loves coming home. And he says, I just can't believe how healthy uh, he is during this grueling time. And, of course, one of the reasons why he's healthy during the grueling time is because it is on a regular schedule. He said, if I were only working four nights a week, I wouldn't stay on this schedule, but he has his sleep time. He sleeps uh, that in, almost that entire day, uh, and then uh, he gets the, the light therapy uh, when he gets up, uh, and he is on a very regular schedule, and he says, I'm grateful for the six nights a week that I'm working, because if it were four, I wouldn't be doing near as well. But I've got my circadian rhythm there. I've got all this going on. But he's also doing frontal lobe enhancement, which often isn't done. Now, I give him as an example because, as we know, and it's difficult, more difficult now to find internal, good internal medicine residents and those sorts of things, so they keep very close tabs of their hours. But when residency hours dramatically decreased, actually burnout and depression and suicide rates increased. So it wasn't work-related so much. Why did it increase as soon as their hours at work decreased? It was because of what else they were doing instead of working. And they were primarily doing frontal lobe suppressing activities. 
you know, they actually, alcohol drinking has gone up among residents now that they have more time. And of course, uh, entertainment movies and, and forms of self-entertainment and things like this. So they're doing frontal lobe suppressing activity, which they think is giving them a break. But in reality, it's causing more of the mental health issues. So this is why in our time off, we need to be intentional in regards to doing frontal lobe enhancing activities. So, and of course, a physical exercise is a, an important part in regards to work-life balance. Aerobic exercise um, is, uh, is very important. And this is something in my own life that is a key ingredient. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very intentional at doing my four miles in the mountains every morning. Uh, and uh, it is a, a key part of my own mental health. But if you have the ability to work with your hands as well, there's some three-dimensional aspects that are even more important. I don't do near as much GI as I used to, uh, being at Weimar and in the administrative roles um, that I'm there, and so I don't do as much 3D work with my hands as I used to, and so I have to find other ways uh, to get that besides the GI lab, but that's one of the things that dentists are going to have. You're doing work with your hands in 3D all day long, and some of the surgeons are going to be doing more of that. And, of course, there's a lot of surgeons that feel good about that. They like their 7.30 a.m. case, and there's something that just seems to help their brain as a result of doing this difficult surgery in the morning, uh, and, uh, and that uh, type of work is healthy. Uh, sleep is also important, uh, and uh, uh, we talked about limiting screen time. And by the way, these are the three things that are a sign that your life is in balance. If you don't, are not in balance, if you don't have time for exercise, if you don't have a time for enough sleep, or if you don't have time for good devotional exercises on a daily basis, your life is not in balance. Those three have to be a key ingredient for physicians, and that's just a very, um, in, you know, a very easy indicator. Are you getting sleep? Are you getting exercise? Are you doing your devotions? And if not, something has to change. You've got to change something to be able to get that. So, uh, and of course, with nutrition, uh, burnout and depression is also an inf uh, often an inflammatory disease of the brain. And interestingly, one of the ways we can decrease inflammation is not only getting arachidonic acid out of the diet, which means a plant-based diet. Arachidonic acid is in eggs, it's in fish, it's in meat. And arachidonic acid, as we all know, is a pro-inflammatory mediator. So this is one of the things that can really help is getting arachidonic acid out uh, of the diet. But it's also uh, one of the things that can help is going into daily ketosis. And how do we pay people in? This is where you can do plant-based ketosis. I told you about the ketosis diet that's unhealthy in the last hour. But the ketosis diet that's healthy is when you're eating a plant-based diet and you don't eat the evening meal. And after 12 hours of fasting, your BDNF level goes up. And it will peak at 17 hours, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And particularly if you have a sedentary work um, you know, uh, where, where you're not getting a lot of exercise at work, which most of us in the medical field are not, uh, that evening meal, uh, skipping that evening meal can actually be healthy for the brain. It turns on the positive neuroplasticity switches. And then there may be some things that we need to do about workplace stress, like team efficiency and computerized assistance. I know a lot of the family practice docs, with all their bureaucratic tasks in the EHR, they've done a lot better by hiring scribes. And they don't hardly ever touch the computer. They're doing patient care 
and they're, they're involved, uh, and their scribes are the ones doing all of that work for them. And uh, their, their improvement in their life goes up uh, significantly. And, um, and then watching out for distortions in thoughts in magnification, the I can't stand it-itis, and confusing needs versus wants. A lot of doctors and dentists get upset because they think their needs aren't being met, but in reality, it's their wants not being met. And they don't have to get that out of kilter over just not getting a want met. How do you know the difference between needs and wants? You just ask yourself a simple question. How long can I go without this before I die? If it doesn't affect that, uh, it is not a need, it's a want. And then we can be more rational about it. And then in regards to the frontal lobe, the devotional life is a, is a key to balance. Healthy classical music helps. Uh, there are several books that we utilize in our program that can help with the frontal lobe enhancement. And, of course, this is scientific. Scientific studies show a strong relationship between even regular church attendance and higher life satisfaction, stronger marriages, and higher ratings of general health status. There's a correlation between low church attendance and depression among young people, especially over the last 15 years. Church attendance is an all-time low in our young people. And um, notice suicide rates are half among church attenders. If there was an antidepressant that decreased the rate of suicide by even 10%, it would be malpractice not to prescribe it. But somehow it's not malpractice to tell your patients if you go to church and if you have a devotional life, enhancing your frontal lobe could help you a great deal. Uh, and, of course, it can also help the caregiver. Um, and researchers actually performed functional MRI scans on 19 young adults while learning about biblical themes in a church or on a video. This was an interesting study. So, in fact, most people, when you take a survey of most people, do you know why most people go to church? The reason why they say it's not social things. The reason why most people state, the majority of people, number one reason why most people go to church is to see what the Bible says about how they should live. They're wanting to know what the Bible says. And so we need to recognize that in our churches. We need to take advantage of that. If we're not telling people how the Bible interrelates with their life, we're not necessarily helping their frontal lobe as much unless you're just playing some good Bach and good Beethoven uh, there uh, in your church service. Uh, But they found spiritual feelings stimulated the nucleus accumbens. This part of the brain is associated with processing reward and is also stimulated by listening to music or even having um, sex. Volunteers reported feeling peaceful and warm inside, and, uh, and some were in tears by the end of the scan just listening to what the Bible says about their life and helping someone to break that Bible down to them. They felt a peak spiritual feeling when watching the stimulating church video. Senior author and neuroradiologist Jeff Anderson said, religious experience is perhaps the most influential part of how people make decisions that affect all of us for good and for ill. And so uh, this is, uh, is something that, unfortunately, our world has entered into this spiritual void and given Eastern meditation as a substitute. This is no substitute, I tell you. Eastern meditation is going to have more of a placebo type of effect, but it's not going to have near an effect like this. Uh, and uh, we need actually regular biblical study, meditating upon the word of God in order to experience that. And so sense of purpose is also important 
in preventing or avoiding burnout, also becoming an expert in something useful, developing a passion outside of your usual source of income can also be healthy, and increasing your love for God and for humanity. And in regards to love, this love aspect of things, which is also this area of nucleus accumbens, it's one of the reasons why sex stimulated this area as well, in regards to the love aspect of things, I think sometimes we have misunderstood a little bit, particularly in modern society, the love of God and even the love for God. Often the phrase that I hear repeatedly is that God's love is unconditional. Now I'll admit it is unfailing. It is a a passionate, pitying love for the lost. But Unconditional is often defined this way. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less, or there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And actually, that part of God's love is not true. And I will show you the evidence. Now, in regards to the pitying love, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son bring out in distinct lines God's pitying love for those who are straying from him. Although they have turned away from God, he does not leave them in their misery. He is full of kindness and tender pity toward all who are exposed to the temptations of the artful foe. And uh, this is a quote actually from Christ's Object Lessons. And he tells us to love our enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And this is actually not a precious love or a romantic love or a brotherly love that he's asking us to have for these people. This is the pitying agape love, the self-sacrificing, compassionate love that he's asking us to give. But the more neglected aspect of God's love is not the pitying love, which we hear a lot about today. It's actually his precious love. And this is something he desires for each one of us to experience. There's a text repeatedly in the Gospel of John that says the disciple whom, what? Jesus loved. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Do you think that was a blessing to John? Absolutely. Was that a blessing that was equally made available to the other disciples? No. Was it just because of of, um, randomness uh, that, that Jesus did this? Notice this quote. He enjoyed, this is John the Beloved, to a preeminent degree the friendship of Christ. And he received many tokens of the Savior's confidence and love. He experienced a preeminent degree. This is not the same degree as the other disciples. Now, it was offered. You know, next to him was Judas. Both of them had significant issues. But Judas did not take advantage of his time with Christ like John did. John was taking full advantage. John did not naturally possess the loveliness of character that he later experienced. By nature, he had serious defects. He was not only proud, he was self-assertive and ambitious for honor. He was impetuous and resentful under injury. He and his brother were called what? The sons of thunder. Evil temper, the desire for revenge, the spirit of criticism. They were all with John. 
the Savior's affection for the beloved disciple was returned with all the strength of what? Ardent devotion. John clung to Christ as the vine clings to the stately pillar. For his master's sake, he braved the dangers of the judgment hall and lingered about the cross. The others wouldn't do that. And at the tidings that Christ had risen, he hastened to the sepulcher in his zeal, outstripping even Peter. The depth and fervor of John's affection for his master was not the cause of Christ's love for him, but the what? The effect of that love. John desired to become like Jesus. And under the transforming influence of the love of Christ, he did become meek and lowly. Self was hidden Jesus. Above all his companions, John yielded himself to the power of that wondrous life. What is that called? It's actually called precious love. God doesn't have precious love for those who are continually going against him. He has pitying love, compassionate love. But it's like the child that's wayward versus the child that is totally on board with mom and dad and with the principles that they've outlined. There's There's a precious love that develops there. Notice this. The Savior loved all the 12, but John's was the what? The most receptive. With more of the child's confiding trust, he opened his heart to Jesus. Thus he became more into sympathy with Christ, and through him the Savior's deepest spiritual teaching was communicated to the people. The Lord draws out the soul in prayer and gives us to feel his what? Precious love. This is what I desire every morning as I am praying and reading the word of God, claiming the promises, asking God if I am in compliance with the commands, and drawing our, my soul out in prayer, I want to feel not as pitying love so much as his precious love. We have a nearness to him and can hold sweet communion with him. We obtain distinct views of his tenderness and compassion, and our hearts are broken and melted with contemplation of the love that is given to us. We feel indeed an abiding Christ in the soul. Our peace is like a river. Wave after wave of glory rolls into the heart, and indeed we sup with Jesus and he with us. We have a realizing sense of the love of God, and we rest in his love. No language can describe it. It is beyond knowledge. We are one with Christ. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We have the assurance that when he who is our life shall appear, then we also will appear with him in glory. So the precious love that tender love. I could speak more about it, but the example also is in marriage. Is the love unconditional in marriage? Well, there might be pitying love that's unconditional, but not precious love. If, like, like Lucifer, who was close to him, walked away, he might have a pitying love, but it's not, no longer any precious love. When divorce occurs, what has happened to that precious love? Christ's bride is the church, and each member of the church triumphant will be a giver and a recipient to the precious love of Jesus. And this is something that will keep you from burnout. This is something that will keep your life in perspective. It's one of the three aspects of crucial um, aspect of keeping you um, purposed. I want to experience more of God's precious love in my life and less of God's pitying love. And when we respond fully to Christ's pitying love with its rebukes, and moral lessons that cut across our natural tendencies and selfish desires, that's when we will begin to experience Christ's precious love. So I've gone a little overboard, or a little over time. I hope this is helpful. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.